This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Wall Street didn't build the country. The middle class built the country. Yeah. 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 Built the middle class. Yeah. That's a fact. So let's keep going. You deserve what you've earned, and you've earned a hell of a lot more than you're getting paid now. Thank you very much. No, your eyes are not deceiving you. You just watched a sitting U.S. president join striking workers on the picket line. This is a really big deal. This has never happened before because usually presidents will just remain neutral at best during these types of labor disputes. But at worst, they straight up just side with the corporations because they fund their campaigns. So, I mean, why wouldn't they? But in this instance, Biden got it right. And he didn't just get it right when it comes to who he's siding with. He showed up. And that matters. He deserves the utmost credit for this. And he even went on to give a really good speech about how these workers all got screwed over after they bailed out these companies. So think about this. You work for a company and you take less so your company can survive. And then they turn around and screw you over. Biden actually addressed that. You guys, the UAW, you saved the automobile industry back in 2008 and before. Made a lot of sacrifices, gave up a lot, and the companies were in trouble. But now they're doing incredibly well. And guess what? You should be doing incredibly well, too. Stick with it, because you deserve the significant raise you need and other Really, really great speech from Biden. And it's not just significant because it's unprecedented. This matters because it raises the standards for all Democrats. As Maxwell Frost puts it, this also makes Democratic politicians joining pickets an expectation now. Big win. And he's correct about that. Biden showing up to the picket line is no small thing. You can't overstate the significance of this. In fact, he was attacked by an Obama administration official because he showed up and sided with workers. Jeff Stein of The Washington Post shared a quote from Stephen Ratner, who led President Obama's auto industry task force. And he said, for him to be going on a picket line is outrageous. There's no precedent for it. The tradition of the president is to stay neutral in these things. I get the politics. The progressives said we don't want a mediator. We want an advocate. And he bowed to the progressives. And now he's going out there to put his thumb on the scale. And it's wrong. Unbelievable. Listen, if a president putting his thumb on the scale in favor of workers is wrong, then I don't want to be right. But Ratner is speaking to this expectation that presidents must remain neutral. Neutral, when in actuality, there's no law that says they have to. They don't have to. But by breaking this custom, it has caused heads to explode in D.C. Because again, presidents don't usually do this. And Biden showing up didn't just spark mass confusion for politicians, but pundits as well. Because during a White House press briefing, members of the press genuinely did not understand 
what the takeaway was from this. Just just watch this. This clip is amazing. It seems like by going to stand with workers at a picket line, the president is literally standing with them in the terms that they're seeking in the contract dispute. But when you're asked about some of the specifics of that, you seem to be saying you guys don't want to get into the specifics of the dispute. So is he not standing with them on the terms with which they're trying to negotiate? With I mean, for, to be very clear, he's standing with them to make sure that they get a fair share. That is what he's standing with them on. He's standing with them, and we've said this, that that they that we that they get the record the record uh, profits mean a record contract for UAW that is why he's going that is what he's standing for now they're going to negotiate what that looks like for them right that's what they're doing right now that's what collective bargaining is all about right they're going to talk it through what a win-win agreement looks like but what we definitely agree on is that they deserve a fair share but it seems like he's taking away the past. Some past presidents have been an arbiter between two sides that are in conflict. It seems like by going to the picket line, he, he's not an arbiter between the two sides. He's choosing a side by standing. But we with have the said line. we have said over and over again that this is a president that stands with union workers. So does the White House see any political risk in in what the president doing this? what the president understands is that he is wants to be on the side and is and has been on the side of workers. Wait, hang on. So I can't determine which side he's on. If he's on the picket line with the workers, then how can he still be neutral? What does this mean? What do I take away from this? I mean, look Take away from it what you will, but I think that was pretty clear. That right there, that press briefing, it really speaks to a huge blind spot that the media has when it comes to these types of labor disputes. They are incapable of viewing these disputes from the lens of workers, and they almost always look at it from the standpoint of the corporations and the economy, right? But I mean, it's obvious why that bias is there, because it's built in. These networks their businesses right their goal primarily is not the dissemination of news and information it is to increase profits right and all these corporations who are exploiting their workers while they advertise on these networks so there's that bias there and it shows especially in times like this so we usually don't get the perspective of anyone but the corporations how much money will this cost them how will this affect the economy but in this instance the president showing up to the picket line, it kind of helps change this dynamic, change the perspective to where we can finally see how the workers are viewing this because the president is kind of forcing you to pay attention to what they're saying, right? And I just want to take a moment to further emphasize how effective this strike has been. So you have Donald Trump and Joe Biden both fighting for the support of these workers. And uh, that's really nice to see. I mean, if this strike were taking place in a non-battleground state, would they be as vocal? I mean, the cynic in me says no, but in this instance, the intent doesn't really matter. The outcome does. So it is good to see both Biden and Trump trying to win over these striking workers explicitly. And the fact that these workers are in a position where both major presidential contenders are jockeying for their support, it's it's 
great. I mean, it would be inconceivable eight, maybe even four years ago, but here we are. We're in a situation where labor has grown so powerful that both major presidential candidates are trying to actively win their support. But Trump took a shot at Biden after he announced that he'd be visiting the picket line, writing on Truth Social, Crooked Joe Biden had no intention of going to visit the United Auto Workers until I announced that I would be heading to Michigan to be with them and help them out. Actually, Crooked Joe Biden sold them down the river with his ridiculous all electric car hoax. This wasn't Biden's idea. He can't put two sentences together. It was the idea of the radical left fascists, Marxists, and communists who control him and who in doing are destroying our country. Within three years, all of these cars will be made in China. That's what Sleepy Joe wants because China pays him and his family a fortune. He is a Manchurian candidate. And get this, if the UAW leadership doesn't endorse me, and if I don't win the election, the auto workers are toast with our great truckers to follow. Crooked Joe Biden is the most corrupt and incompetent president in the history of the USA. If he is able to gather the energy to show up, tell him to go to the southern border instead and to leave the car industry alone. Yeah. So it turns out he showed up and it went really well. Now, putting aside the stupidity and him ironically referring to the radical left as fascists and communists simultaneously, I mean, the desperation there is palpable. He feels like he's being one-upped by Joe Biden, and he is. But the presumptive Republican presidential nominee is literally asking for the union's endorsement. Is he doing it in a very stupid, clumsy way? Yes, but to see a Republican presidential contender actually say, I want that union's endorsement, I mean, that means that the workers are in a very good spot. And perhaps there's a kernel of truth to what Trump said about Biden having no intention of visiting until Trump announced that he'd be going there. But I mean, at the end of the day, what matters is that Biden showed up. And we know Trump would never do the same as a sitting president. And we know this because his anti-labor policies tell us everything we need to know about him. And Trump also made a fatal error here. He's not actually going to be speaking at the striking plants. He's holding his rally at a non-union plant. But don't take it from me. Take it from CNN, who actually reported on this. Uh, we also know from our reporting that uh, a union source telling us that they do not consider former President Trump's visit tomorrow in Detroit at Drake Enterprises a show of solidarity with the union because that is not a union shop. However, we know that President Biden was invited directly by the union. Oops. Now, I have to point out that the Chiron says it all. Biden joins auto workers on the picket line in Michigan. That tells you the importance of the president of the United States showing up and using his bully pulpit to advocate for workers. Because CNN wasn't just reporting on Biden's visit. They had a reporter in the field with striking workers, talking to striking workers. So it really goes to show you how important it is for the president to show their support to these striking workers. And even though the media still, as I mentioned, has a lot of blind spots when it comes to labor issues, what we're seeing now is how the labor movement is unilaterally shifting the entire Overton window to the left. And that is really encouraging to see. Now, Tina Desiree of Status Coup spoke with striking workers about Trump's visit in a non-union facility, and uh, they definitely had some thoughts, to say the least. Trump is actually going to be speaking at a non-union facility. I don't understand how he can address union workers 
at a non-union facility and still come off as being um, pro-labor. It seems to me like, what are you trying to make a play for right to work? Like, what's going on here? Do you have any thoughts on that? If you can't talk about it, that's fine. I get it. But if you can't. No, I don't think that Trump is pro-labor. I mean, it's just that simple. I mean, he's, he's got a history, a very, very long, sorted history of not paying his workers. Uh, he's got a, a lot of people kind of chomping at the bit, trying to get paid as it is now. He's not paying his lawyers. Uh, so, I, yeah, as, as far as labor is concerned, it doesn't matter where he goes to speak. None of us are going to believe it. And therein lies the problem. Trump's populist rhetoric may have landed in 2016 because he didn't have a record to look at. But I mean, after four years of him being president, workers felt the pain inflicted by his anti-labor laws. And that's now hurting him. It's coming to bite him in the ass. That's a problem. And while the UAW hasn't officially made an endorsement of either candidate yet, they've been openly critical of Donald Trump. And they made it clear that he wasn't welcome there, which is perhaps why he had to show up to a non-union facility. And as the Washington Post reports, Biden comes at the invitation of union leaders. Trump came despite their warnings to keep his distance. Ouch. Biden has touted a record as a pro-union president while at times struggling to maintain the support of rank-and-file members. Trump calls himself pro-worker while at times clashing with union leadership and implementing policies as president that worked against their interests. And to make matters worse, Trump is also trying to gaslight workers. Ross Story explains Trump attacked the union workers last week when he spoke with NBC's Meet the Press. Quote, the auto workers will not have any jobs, Kristen, because all of these cars are going to be made in China. The electric cars automatically are going to be made in China, Trump told Christian Welker. The former president believes electric cars are automatically made in China, ignoring that Joe Biden's infrastructure package and the Inflation Reduction Act required that for the $7,500 tax credit to be applicable, the cars must meet requirements for U.S. assembly and materials. Yeah. So Trump isn't just talking past the striking workers. He's creating his own narrative and supporting the striking workers on those grounds that he fabricated in his own head. And he's not alone, right? We've seen Republican senators like Marco Rubio and Tom Cotton also signal support for the striking workers on those grounds, claiming that really they're striking because they don't like Biden's climate policies, when in actuality, they're telling you why they're striking. It's because their bosses are exploiting them and they've had enough. They want a cost of living raise. They want to actually be treated fairly. So, I mean, if their CEOs got a 40% increase, they want a 40% increase, especially considering the fact that they bailed out these companies. So it is really a bad look when Republicans pretend to support the workers, but it's obvious they haven't listened to what the workers have to say. But I don't want to give you the impression that the UAW workers are unequivocally with Biden because that would be inaccurate. Even though he's joining them on the picket line today, there's still some lingering skepticism about him. HuffPost reports, mind your own business, said Dan Hall, a 66-year-old who's worked at Ford for nearly 29 years, summing up his attitude towards the current and former presidents. Quote, it's not about them, it's about us. The only thing they're here for is votes. See, I supported you. No, you didn't. You came out here. Same thing with Trump. Look, this sentiment is completely understandable. Yes, it is objectively good to see Biden show up to the picket line, but these workers aren't illogical or unreasonable to question whether or not they'd be getting this much attention if this wasn't an election season, right? Worker rights shouldn't live or die based on whether or not it's an election year or an election season, which is why the implementation of policies to embolden unions and workers is absolutely crucial. Now, another issue that some workers have with Biden, and rightfully so, I think, think is that 
he'll be attending a fundraiser directly after he's at the picket line. So he's going to leave the picket line and then go to a very wealthy donor fundraiser. So there's this question of whether or not he's telling them one thing and then telling donors something completely different. The article continues, asked about Biden's California fundraiser plan for Tuesday, which will cost anywhere from $5,000 to $10,000 a head to attend. Nakia Brown said she voted for Biden and continues to support him, but hopes the president realizes that people are really struggling. She also pointed out how her union has been a major political backer of Biden's, although the UAW has so far withheld its endorsement of Biden for 2024, while also saying it has no intention of supporting Trump, the likely GOP nominee. Quote, if we can throw out all these billions of dollars to all these other countries, I'm not saying they don't need help, but if we don't fix home first, we can't help anybody else, said Brown, who has worked on the line at Ford for two years. Right now we're struggling, we're losing, and I appreciate that he wants to come out here and support and do the right thing. Many of the striking workers describe themselves as swing voters. My job is very important to me and my family, so if you can help me out with my job, that's how you can sway me, said Chris Jedidjek, 44, who has worked at Ford for 24 years. I wish there was a third option there. Inside the plan, there's so many Trump supporters I talk to. There's a lot of Democrats, not too many Biden supporters, but there's a lot of Democrats in there. Marissa Beck, 40, said she's voted for Democrats but has moved to the center more recently, while her co-worker Tony Jarrell, 42, has voted for Republicans but has also found herself seeking to reevaluate both parties. Both women who began working together in 2007 say they dislike comments Biden and Trump have made about their union and its members. Quote, both have said damaging things as far as I'm concerned, Beck said. Their support shown during a moment when we are on strike is appreciated. I don't know what they could say that I would believe. It's a political year. So these workers are skeptical still. And I think that this insight, these perspectives are really important because since the Democratic Party took a neoliberal turn since the Clinton era, that trust was broken. And fundamentally, that pro-corporate structure within the party has not changed at all, as evidenced by the fact that Biden shut down a strike from the railroad workers just last year. So I don't want to make it seem as if, you know, I'm unable to take yes for an answer or trying to withdraw credit from Biden or trying to perpetuate some false equivalence between Democrats and Republicans because that's not the case. But what I am saying is that showing up is important, but it's going to take more than that for the Democratic Party to win back the trust of these voters who felt left behind, right? Having said that, though, I think that this is a great start, and Biden certainly gets credit where it's due, but this change that we're seeing where both major presidential contenders are competing for labor, that is a change that is driven entirely by the labor movement, and it demonstrates that real change always comes from the bottom up and not the top down. Now, when it comes to the UAW strike itself, even without maximum pressure being applied yet, the union has already been massively successful. The big three automakers have seen their reputations plummet, with a majority of Americans saying that they support the strike. And on top of that, thanks to the rolling nature of the strike, confused automakers ended up hurting themselves by anticipating strikes at the wrong facilities because they didn't know which ones were going to go on strike. As The Intercept explains, Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis stalled production and moved parts out of plants across the country, according to rank-and-file workers, self-inflicting financial damage that could have been avoided by meeting workers' demands. Precisely. So, for the first time, we're seeing that the onus is on the corporations and not the workers to do the right thing. The onus is on the corporations to meet the demands of their workers because what they're asking for is incredibly reasonable. So, what we're seeing is a paradigm shift in this country currently. 
And when it comes to the UAW strike, I think needless to say, the strike has already been incredibly effective. And corporations across the country are probably seeing what's transpiring here and they're shitting themselves because we're all simultaneously getting a lesson in the importance of unions and the power of collective bargaining. Everyone's paying attention. The world is watching. And that's bad news for these corporations. And this is by far one of the most important moments in my generation, if not the most important moment in this generation. So I would highly encourage you to follow this labor movement because this is what is driving change in this country the most, right? So watch on the ground interviews by Status Coup. I'd also highly recommend the Valley Labor Report. They're actually an Alabama-based radio show, but they cover all types of labor issues. They're also on YouTube as well, so definitely check them out. I think they're really, really on point and very insightful. But I mean, yeah, we'll leave that there. All around, this has been a fantastic month for labor and it's only going to get better i have worked with him time and time again brought many wealthy clients to him brought many issues in front of him never has there been any hint of impropriety never has he hinted about a payback or anything like that so i'm having a very hard time reconciling the evidence i saw shown on tv with the bob menendez i have known for almost 30 years this is personally hard for me but you know when I saw all the evidence, I get it, I'm, I'm shaken. I'm, I'm hoping against hope that there is some sort of logical explanation. You just watched Ana Navarro's reaction to news that her longtime friend, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez, has been charged with bribery. And even though she does, to her credit, admit that it doesn't look good, her mental gymnastics there are still hilarious to watch, considering the overwhelming evidence and the fact that he was literally charged with corruption before. And to be clear, she knows this. She mentions it. But I also Bob, know Bob Menendez. I know Bob Menendez is not going to resign. He beat this mm. once. He's, you know, he's thinking, I'm, uh, you know, I can fight this. I'm going to fight this. He's not, I don't think he's going to resign. I think he's going to uh, go to trial on this. This looks ugly. This looks bad. This is hard to explain. I can't come up with, uh, with an explanation. Then don't. It's that simple. But she was referring to the last time he was charged with corruption, 18 counts to be clear. Uh, but that was declared a mistrial due to a split jury with 10 of the 12 jurors finding him not guilty. And as Politico explains, the U.S. Department of Justice had charged Menendez with doing official favors for his friend and co-defendant Solomon Melgan, a Florida eye doctor, in exchange for expensive hotel stays, private jets, and hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign contributions. But... Here we are again, six years later, and you know, something tells me that the jurors in that case got it wrong, or perhaps the prosecution didn't present enough evidence, but I mean, either way, it's pretty clear that where there's smoke, there's fire, especially when it comes to corruption charges of a U.S. senator, and um, we all know he did that shit allegedly. But we're going to come back to Ana Navarro in a moment because after grappling with the reality that her friend is facing corruption charges again for the second time in a decade, she did offer a soft defense for him that I do want to get to because I do think it's really gross. But before we get to that, I do want to talk about the charges currently because they are indeed bad as she insinuates. The New York Times explains the three count federal indictment depicted a brazen plan hatched during furtive dinners in text messages and on encrypted calls, much of it aimed 
at increasing U.S. assistance to Egypt and aiding businessmen in New Jersey. Mr. Menendez's wife, Nadine Menendez, is accused of acting as a go-between passing messages to an American Egyptian businessman, Wail Hanna, who maintained close connections with Egyptian military and intelligence officials, the indictment said. Mr. Menendez is also accused of meddling in an investigation by the New Jersey Attorney General's office, using advice and pressure in an attempt to persuade a senior prosecutor to go easy in the case of two associates of a man who gave Miss Menendez a Mercedes-Benz convertible. The prosecutor considered Mr. Menendez's actions inappropriate and did not agree to intervene, according to the indictment. In exchange for all those actions, the indictment said the senator and his wife accepted cash, gold, payments toward a home mortgage, the luxury car, and other valuable things. The day after a trip to Egypt in 2021, the indictment said Mr. Menendez asked in an internet query, how much is one kilo of gold worth? He was very brazen. And also uh, text messages from Hannah, the person he was in contact with, basically said, oh, Menendez, he's our guy or he's our man or something to that effect. So, I mean, they've got him dead to rights here. And we're talking about textbook corruption, quid pro quos, abuse of power, and the DOJ lays out all the evidence with photographs. And you can see that, I mean, they kind of have his balls pinned to the wall. And since the charges were announced, he did send a letter to Chuck Schumer announcing that he's resigning from his position as chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. But he has remained defiant amid calls for him to resign from Congress, which is bad because if you are caught in this corruption scandal and you're literally being charged, then you also should not be in that position of power because yes you are entitled to the presumption of innocence under the law mind you still this is a distraction and if you cared about the democratic party and democrats retaining that seat in 2024 then you shouldn't be in this position currently you should resign and the calls for him to resign i wouldn't say that they're overwhelming but there have been significant people who have made that call that includes the democratic governor of his state of new jersey that includes senators sherrod brown and john fetterman and also representative summer lee and aoc but calls are growing and i expect more people to join in the problem is that at the time that I record this video, at least, it doesn't seem like Democratic Party leadership is also stepping in to call for him to resign. The Washington Post reports Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer said in a statement Friday that Menendez, quote, has a right to due process and a fair trial. Embarrassing. That is absolutely embarrassing because nobody's saying that he doesn't get due process or a fair trial if he resigns from the Senate. That's just saying this is very serious. And as a party, we're taking this seriously, but they're not. Apparently, Democratic Party leadership is uh, willing to give him a pass. And if they don't actually call on him to resign, then they really should never criticize Republican corruption ever again. Because if you're willing to excuse corruption when your party does it, you don't actually care about corruption. You're just a partisan hack. So nobody is denying that he should have a right to a fair trial. Of course, that's the case. But Democrats need to let Americans know that they take corruption and these charges very seriously, especially in an environment where their opponents are fascists who have no regard for the rule of law. But what's even worse than the hypocrisy, in my opinion, is the fact that he is still expected to seek re-election officially in 2024, meaning that the entire party's chances of keeping that seat, which is crucial, is now in jeopardy. Because why would voters want to vote for somebody who's been charged with corruption? So you're just going to hand it over to a Republican potentially because you don't want to resign because you're greedy and you're, you're power hungry? 
it's ridiculous. So even if Democratic Party leadership thinks that he's innocent, which they should not, but even if they do think he is innocent, just out of self-interest for the party and country, they should call on him to resign because, I mean, that one seat is absolutely crucial. And just as a matter of principle, somebody who's corrupt shouldn't be in that position of power. But I mean, as if the story wasn't already insane enough, Menendez's defense was so goddamn bad that it almost felt like I was watching a parody when he gave his press conference. For example, listen to his explanation for the bribes that they found in cash in his home. For 30 years, I have withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I have kept for emergencies and because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba. Now this may seem old-fashioned, but these were monies drawn from my personal savings account based on the income that I have lawfully derived over those 30 years. I look forward to addressing other issues at trial. Bitch, come on. We're not talking about a couple of hundred dollars that you keep in your wallet in the event that your debit card malfunctions or is declined at the grocery store. We're talking about $480,000 in cash hidden in clothing, in closets, in his safe. I mean, that much money in cash is not necessary unless you're doing or did something very, very illegal. But he's saying, oh, no, you know, I just I keep I keep that money there in case of a rainy day. You are so fucking full of shit. I could smell it from here, man. But I mean, at the same press conference, when he made it clear that he's not stepping down, he used uh, the Trump playbook to defend himself. Now, he didn't say exactly what Trump says to defend himself. But I mean, if you read between the lines, we're getting some Trumpian vibes here. The court of public opinion is no substitute for our revered justice system. We cannot set aside the presumption of innocence for political expediency when the harm is irrevocable. To those who have rushed to judgment, you have done so based on a limited set of facts framed by the prosecution to be as salacious as possible. Remember, prosecutors get it wrong sometimes. Sadly, I know that. Instead of waiting for all the facts to be presented, Others have rushed to judgment because they see a political opportunity for themselves or those around them. I did everything right and they indicted me. He's trying so hard to not call this a witch hunt. But I mean, this should be a lesson to all the Republicans who claim that the Department of Justice is being weaponized against Republicans because we are talking about a Democratic senator here. If it were weaponized against Republicans, then this would not be possible, right? The Justice Department, it acts with autonomy and they did a lot of evidence digging to bring up these charges. They wouldn't bring charges against a US Senator unless they had a sufficient amount of evidence, right? So if the Justice Department were actually being weaponized against Republicans in particular, this indictment wouldn't have happened, right? But that's kind of a side point. Now, you might have missed it, but he kind of glossed over it. He said that prosecutors get it wrong sometimes. Sadly, I know that. Now, I believe that is a reference to his previous charges, which, again, he got off, was not convicted. It was a mistrial, but still, now that these charges are brought up again less than a decade later, seems like, hmm, that situation was maybe 
not justice, right? Justice was not served in that instance, or at least we can speculate that that is indeed the case. But I do want to go back to Ana Navarro since we're now familiar with the current charges because she did try to defend him and it wasn't an explicit or overt defense. It was more of a soft defense using deflection and whataboutism. But I have to show this because I have a two-word rebuttal and I want to point out why what she's saying is indeed gross, but let's listen. I do think that there is a bigger problem here than Bob Menendez. The problem here is Bob Menendez's wife cashing in on his name, or uh, Joe Biden's son cashing in on his name, or Jared Kushner cashing in on that, or, uh, you know, Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas was having his mama's house paid for as well by a billionaire. A lot of trips. Okay, so, so uh, there's got to be some consistency, and at some point, <clears throat> Congress needs to get a hold of this swampiness going on, and they have got to, you know, deal with the idea that they can't just have their stupid family members making money off their own name. Hey, Anna, both bad. The person in power abusing power is bad, but simultaneously, the family member using her proximity to power to cash in is also bad. Both things are obviously simultaneously bad, and we don't have to pretend as if one is worse than the other because that would conveniently benefit your friend and make him look less bad somehow. And I mean, it is bizarre that she thinks that his wife cashing in on his corruption and his power is somehow a bigger problem than his corruption. I mean, he's the person with the power here. The buck stops with him, and he's also a willing participant here. It's not like he was being taken advantage of. His wife was the go-between, right? So, yes, Hunter Biden and Jared Kushner, these are also instances of corrupt sons and family members of people in power using their position of power to cash in, right? And that's bad. We should address the systemic corruption in D.C., but it feels like she's bringing all of this up just to deflect from the attention that her friend is getting. And that, to me, feels gross. I think that if you're going to be against corruption, you should be against corruption because corruption is obviously bad. Not just all of a sudden call out the swamp in D.C. because your friend, for a second time conspicuously, is getting charged with corruption. So, I mean, the moral of the story is that people need to stop fucking being hacks, right? Party affiliation should not determine our response to corruption charges. Ethics should. And if your first instinct is to defend someone accused of wrongdoing because they're on your team or in your tribe, then you need to fight that urge. And we can extrapolate and apply this to the Russell Brand story or any stories with celebrities where they're accused of wrongdoing if you're a fan of them, right? Objectivity is really important. And Democrats not calling for his resignation, it makes their condemnation of Trump and his crimes and corruption look really hollow and superficial. And that's bad. So even though I'm picking on Anna Navarro a little bit here, I think that ultimately it's more embarrassing that the Democratic Party isn't unified in calling for him to resign. I think that that's really disgusting and a mishandling of this situation. And while Menendez is indeed entitled to the presumption of innocence under the law, let me be clear. He is not entitled to the presumption of innocence in the court of public opinion. And as someone with absolutely no horse in this race, allow me to say that he almost certainly did that shit, allegedly. And Ajit Pai, this means war. We're not going to lie down and take it. We will fight you, Ajit. Longtime viewers of the channel know that I have been talking about the importance of net neutrality since 2017. 2017, it's been a very long time. And after six years of covering this story fairly regularly and then providing you with updates time and again, I'm happy to report that we are actually on the cusp of a major victory. 
In fact, we're going to win the war. We've won battles here and there, but we're about to take home the W entirely. Because as the New York Times reports, the Biden administration plans to bring back open internet rules that were enacted during the Obama administration and then repealed by the Trump administration. In a speech on Tuesday, Jessica Rosenworcel, chairwoman of the Federal Communications Commission, declared that the repeal in 2017 put the FCC on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of the law, and the wrong side of the public. In other words, Ajit Pai's pro-corporate legacy is going to be repealed in its entirety. This is very good news, to say the least. And um, we haven't seen the actual proposal from Rosen Morsel yet, but this is a longtime proponent of net neutrality. She supported it as an FCC commissioner under the Obama administration. And during Ajit Pai's reign of terror, she fought against him. But now... She's going to be able to cook up her own repeal of the repeal of net neutrality. And I am confident that whatever she produces, it's it's going to be fantastic. So I'm not worried about that. But if you're wondering why it took so long, well, it's because the FCC has been deadlocked with two Republicans and two Democrats. So that means anything that Jessica Rosenworcel comes up with, well, there's going to be a tie and nothing will get through. And on top of that, Senate Republicans have obstructed Biden's nominee for over a year. In fact, Biden's pro-net neutrality nominee, Gigi Sohn, was smeared in an astroturfed campaign likely funded by Internet service providers. And Republican senators also smeared her as a woke radical leftist. And unfortunately, it worked. Now, once Joe Manchin announced that he would be siding with Republicans and voting against her, she realized that she effectively had no path towards confirmation and chose to withdraw her nomination. But on September 7th, we finally made some progress because Biden's new nominee, Anna Gomez, was confirmed as FCC commissioner, meaning that Democrats now had a majority on the FCC to put forth policies that they can actually vote on and enact. Now, Anna Gomez has worked in both the public and private sector, and she was formerly a telecom attorney, much like Ajit Pai. But I think that her being from within the industry and also working in the public sector, she's worked with the FCC as well, probably eased Republicans' fears, and um, they voted for her. But unlike Ajit Pai, she actually does support net neutrality, and all that matters is that she's going to be that vote that we need to bring back net neutrality. And she is. And with her confirmation, the FCC is now in a position to roll back everything that Ajit Pai did. Now, it's been a while since I've talked about net neutrality, so I do want to take some time to explain what that means for people who are new to this issue, because this is something that is very heavily propagandized, and it's difficult to find trustworthy sources on this issue because the internet service providers have so much at stake, and they spread so much disinformation to confuse people. But net neutrality, for those unaware, is a good thing. It is something that we need. Net neutrality requires internet service providers like Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T to treat all web traffic equally, which means that Verizon, for example, can't throttle traffic to Netflix in order to get people to use their streaming service instead. It could potentially harm competition. But also it means that internet service providers aren't able to carve up the internet. They have to offer the entire internet to customers. And this image right here demonstrates what the internet could look like, where ISPs pitch lower cost internet options like a social media package, but don't give people access to other options unless they pay like entertainment. So they couldn't stream Netflix, for example. And the ultimate goal here was to basically turn the internet into cable TV.
right? So they can just charge people more. It was a scam. It was all about internet service provider greed. And under Trump's FCC, under the leadership of Ajit Pai, they made that legal. They made it so these internet service providers could do that. And with any regulatory changes, you know, there's always a required period beforehand where the public is allowed to weigh in and comment on the changes. But the process under Ajit Pai was deeply corrupt. The FCC's comment system was flooded with millions of fake comments. And we later found out that these comments were being funded by broadband companies themselves, who were also simultaneously heavily lobbying in favor of the repeal of net neutrality. And to make matters worse, Ajit Pai's repeal of net neutrality tried to preempt state laws on the subject which meant that if Utah, for example, tried to pass its own net neutrality law in defiance of the FCC, well, that law would be illegal automatically because that's what Ajit Pai's repeal of net neutrality included. This was supported by state senators like Ted Cruz, who wrote op-eds in favor of this. And at the same time, he also took a lot of money from internet service providers. But thankfully, a court struck down that provision which was very, very bad news for internet service providers because that was the core of their repeal of net neutrality. Because state after state after state ended up passing their own net neutrality laws, states like Oregon, Washington, California, New York, and others. And some of these states had net neutrality protections that were arguably stronger than the ones that were introduced under the Obama administration. And these state laws totally undermined the national net neutrality repeal put in place by the Trump administration. Because if you have all of these states, the most populous states like California and New York, undermining the FCC with this appeal, well, obviously that's bad news for ISPs. It's going to make it much more difficult for them to roll out these draconian changes that they initially planned to. But that's not to say that the repeal of net neutrality hasn't been damaging because it has. One example is the Santa Clara Fire Department in California being literally throttled by Verizon during a firefight until they paid the company double. And once they paid, the throttling was lifted, although not immediately. Now, Verizon claims that it was just a mistake and had nothing to do with net neutrality even though they've lobbied against it for years. But the Santa Clara Fire Department, on the other hand, wasn't buying it. And they then submitted that incident as evidence in a lawsuit against the FCC as a reason to reinstate net neutrality at the national level. But needless to say, California later passed their own net neutrality law once the preemption rule was struck down because... I mean, Verizon's greed literally endangered public safety. A lot of us anticipated these ISPs just carving up the internet. Nobody thought that they would do something that evil where they literally throttle firefighters during a firefight. And for those of you unaware, yes, they do need the internet so they can coordinate during large firefights. So this actually inhibited their ability to fight fires. So it goes to show you that net neutrality was far more important than any of us had imagined even. But now net neutrality is coming back. It's going to return to all 50 states. And I promise you, internet service providers are not going to be happy about this. And as a result, expect to see a major, major disinformation campaign, especially during that public comment period. Because if the ISPs spent millions funding tons of fake comments, then imagine what they're going to do when net neutrality is coming back. So we need to be prepared 
And Evan Greer of Battle for the Net writes, very shortly we will update battleforthenet.com to make it super easy for ordinary internet users to submit official net neutrality comments to the FCC docket. We know the phony opposition and telecom lobbying is incoming. Time to make our voices heard again. And they are exactly correct. So even though we are on the cusp of victory, we can't give up and get complacent. We have to be very cognizant of the fact that there's going to be some manipulation. There's going to be a lot of propaganda, particularly from Fox News and Republican senators, some Democratic Party senators like Joe Manchin in particular, who are funded by ISPs. But I'm going to link you to the Battle for the Net website down below so you can also submit your own comments. And I would highly encourage you to do that. I think that we have to be active to make sure that we get these protections that we fought for now for years. And I would highly encourage you to follow Battle for the Net because this is one of the best organizations when it comes to net neutrality and just internet openness uh, openness in general. But I also want to read you this statement by Demand Progress in full because I think that they put it best and it's a really great summary if you want to share this with your friends. Quote, we are thrilled that the FCC will finally be able to undo the damage done during the Trump administration under FCC Chair Ajit Pai and restore net neutrality. We have applaud Chair Jessica Rosenworcel for recognizing the importance of strong open internet protections and her immediate use of the newly full commission to restore the agency's authority to oversee broadband providers under Title II. Giant corporations and their lobbyists blocked President Biden from filling the final FCC seat for more than two years, and they will try every trick to block or delay the agency from restoring net neutrality now. The commission must remain resolute and fully restore free and open internet protections to ensure broadband service providers like Comcast and Verizon treat all content equally. This means providers cannot censor content, create fast lanes for their own products, throttle traffic, or block access to their competitors. Americans' internet experience should not be at the whims of corporate executives whose primary concerns are the pockets of their stakeholders and the corporation's bottom line. Very well said. So it's not over yet, obviously. We're going to have to strongly push back against anti-net neutrality talking points that we see from Republican politicians, right-wing grifters and others but make no mistake about it this is a very very positive move and if you care about freedom on the internet if you care about the internet being open for everyone and to everyone then this is a really good day for you So apparently some Republicans are mad at Taylor Swift for the most Republican reason ever. What did she do exactly? Well, she had the audacity to dare to encourage her young, impressionable fans to vote. And worse, she told them how to vote, where to register, to be exact. Can you believe her? I can't believe that she would do this. As a, as a Swifty myself, I've got to say, I feel betrayed. Now, Obviously, I'm being sarcastic, but I don't think that my sarcasm adequately conveys how insane this response is. Now, the controversy all stemmed from this one Instagram post she made where she asks her fans, are you registered to vote yet? I've been so lucky to see so many of you guys at my US shows recently. I've heard you raise your voices and I know how powerful they are. Make sure you're ready to use them in our elections this year. Register to vote in less than two minutes at vote.org slash NVRD. Now, even though Republicans weren't too happy about that recommendation, and I'll tell you why in a moment, the response from her fans was overwhelming to say the least. Vote.org tweeted that they saw a 1,226% spike in web traffic an hour after she made that post. And on top of that, as Teen Vogue explains, Vote.org wrote in a statement that 35,252 new voters registered that same day 
the most since 2020 and a 23% boost from last year. The site also saw a 72% jump in the number of 18-year-olds registering compared to last year. Wow. So if you know anything about Republicans, you can see why that enraged them. With a single Instagram post, Taylor Swift was able to register thousands of new disproportionately young people to vote. And if the last two elections taught us anything, it's that young people participating in these elections is very bad news for Republicans. So predictably, they were outraged over this. And rather than trying to create their own get out the vote movement for Republicans, well, they just proceeded to attack Taylor Swift for daring to do this. Now, there were a lot of no-name conservatives who spoke out against her. They had, you know, small accounts, and we'll get to them in a moment here. But what I really want to focus on are the prominent haters of Taylor Swift, namely Sean Davis, who's the CEO of the Federalist Society, who tweeted, Taylor Swift is dumb and her music sucks in response. And he also linked to an article from September 5th titled, Taylor Swift's popularity is a sign of societal decline, hyperbolic much. And if you look at the article, it is an unnecessarily long article about things that he doesn't like about her. Basically, he thinks that she's a narcissist and her lyrics are bad and he doesn't understand why why she's so popular but i mean you could have saved yourself so much time saved so many characters if you just didn't write that article and you just tweeted her music isn't for me i don't get it that's fine but we all know that the reason why he reshared his shitty article is because he's butthurt that she registered people to vote which again is bad news for republicans but i don't know why he thought this would be a good idea but he tweeted this out and then proceeded to get dragged by Taylor Swift fans. I don't know if that was the response that he was expecting, because I mean, sure, certainly Republicans chimed in agreeing with what he said, but for the most part, they roasted the shit out of him for daring to attack Taylor Swift, and not only just attack her, but attack her for the dumbest reason imaginable. So this person responded saying, I'm sorry this happened to you, Lamau. This person just responded with a picture of him, which is surprisingly devastating when you, when you see when you see uh you know what he looks like he's definitely a conservative dweeb this person says ugly mfers can't relate to taylor it's okay dude stick to oliver anthony he's more your speed this person just says shut up nerd and my favorite we encourage republicans to continue picking these loser fights with cultural icons like taylor swift disney bud light exactly yeah and that's a really great point because republicans constantly by declaring everything woke or liberal or whatever they end up hurting themselves inadvertently because they don't realize that these cultural institutions in the United States are institutions for a reason. Lots of people love them. And especially when you're going after a pop star, I just feel like you're asking for a lot of people to shit on you, right? And you're not even critiquing her substantively, right? This isn't a type of critique of music that you see from Anthony Fantano. His article was trash. Now, admittedly, I did not read the whole thing, but I read several paragraphs and considered quoting him in this video, but it's really unnecessary. He's just an out-of-touch dude who doesn't like the music, which is fine, but when you unnecessarily attack someone and it feels like you are just butthurt because she encouraged people to vote, people are gonna call you out for that. Now, there's a lot more criticisms of him, but to be clear, that wasn't the universal response. There were many Republicans, or I should say, uh, seeming Republicans who chimed in 
And they also were not happy with what Taylor Swift did, which, again, was just encourage people to fucking vote for Christ's sake. So this person quote tweeted the article saying, a more vacuous person you'll not find. If she leads prepubescent young girls deeper into ignorance, that is on the parents. The parents who are Swifties should not be issued any government docs higher than fishing licenses. Yeah, very normal response here from a grown man. Uh, you also had a couple of quote tweets from Blue Checks not understanding why she's as popular as she is. And I'm sorry, but that sounds like cope to me. If somebody says or does something politically that you don't like and you bring in non-germane reasons to attack them, like saying she doesn't have talent or she's overexposed, I just feel like that's... That's cope. I mean, I don't like Chris Pratt in particular. I think his politics are indeed dog shit. But if I were to bring in how I think he's not talented or not funny, then that would feel like cope. You you know that that would sound like cope because I think that he is a fairly decent actor. I mean, sure, he gets too many roles now and he kind of plays the same character. But if I'm saying that within the context of criticizing him for a political view that he has, then, you know, it, it feels a little bit copey, does it not? You all know it sounds copey. Uh, but the real reason why they don't like her all of a sudden is because she was able to galvanize her fans. And that is a real threat to Republican power. And we know this because it's not the first time that they attacked her for this. So believe it or not, back in 2018, Taylor Swift was involved in another quote unquote scandal where she endorsed a Democrat on Instagram and also registered 65,000 new voters in a single day, leading to conservative meltdowns back then as well. The American Independent wrote, Turning Point USA Executive Director Charlie Kirk seemed to be especially crushed by Swift's endorsement, taking to Twitter for an extended public meltdown on the subject, claiming the global superstar had no idea of what she was talking about. He then continued his whining on Fox News and Fox business where he bitterly denounced the singer as a know-nothing charlatan yeah that's ironic coming from charlie kirk of all people but it wasn't just him who was sounding off at the time after she registered tens of thousands of new people to vote the national republican senate committee literally issued a statement about this condemning her saying if you haven't heard multi-millionaire pop star taylor swift came down from her ivory tower to tell hard-working tennesseans to vote for phil bredesen Yes, because the party who voted to cut the taxes of multimillionaires just like her a year earlier definitely care about the hardworking people of Tennessee. Give me a fucking break. But here's what I want to make very clear. This really is not about Taylor Swift, right? Even though conservatives already may not like her because she's a vocally liberal pop star, they're going after any and everyone who dares to try to expand the voting electorate, right? Anyone who's able to register, actually register large swaths of people to vote is going to be their target. It's not just her, it's Stacey Abrams, it's any other organization that's effective at mobilizing people. Because democracy itself is the biggest obstacle to Republican power, and by expanding the electorate, Taylor Swift has proven that she's an actual threat to the GOP's power. But she's not alone because Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro announced automatic voter registration in his state, meaning that anyone who obtains a driver's license or ID card will automatically be registered to vote. Now, Republicans immediately condemned this move. Trump called it a disaster for the election of the Republican Party and said that, quote, it must be met harshly by Republican leadership. And also former Trump administration official and white nationalist Stephen Miller suggested that it was a ploy to allow undocumented immigrants to vote. Now, he knows 
knows that that's not true. But regardless, these are things that they say because they don't want to just come out and say, we really don't want more people voting because they're probably going to vote for Democrats and not Republicans. But in an interview with CNN, the governor of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, responded to that criticism and he shut it down. You mentioned what the DMV or what checks there are, right, from the DMV, etc. I just was wondering if you could please respond directly to Stephen Miller, former Donald Trump aide, who, who tweeted this, I can promise you there will be no citizenship verification. Just want to give you a chance to respond directly to that. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm not going to respond to Stephen Miller. That guy's a dope who can't tell the yeah, truth. Yeah, I'm not asking you Here's about Stephen Miller, Governor, but just, just about what he raises, because I think he raises a question others may raise. So just to the to the substance of what he said. Right. Right. Well, he doesn't raise any substance. Here is the actual substance. When you go to get a driver's license, when you go to renew your driver's license, you have to bring identifying documents mm -hmm. um, in order to be able to secure that driver's license. The same documents that are required in order to be able to register to vote. We're relying on a system that already has safeguards built into it to allow someone to be automatically registered to vote. Listen, Poppy, I went to court more than 40 times to defeat people like Stephen Miller and others who tried to thwart the will of the people here in mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, who made up all kinds of ridiculous claims after the 2020 election. And I won every single time in court and defended the will of the people here in Pennsylvania, defended the right to vote. And mm -hmm. here in Pennsylvania, we value our freedom, we value our democracy, and voting is central to that. And now it's easier for eligible voters to have their yeah. voices heard here in the Commonwealth. And I think yep, he is exactly correct. In Oregon, we have automatic voter registration, and guess what? There's no fraud, right? We've also had mail-in voting for decades, and it's not controversial, it's not a partisan issue here. Both Republicans and Democrats enjoy it because it makes it a lot easier for all of us to vote. This isn't just automatic voter registration for Democrats. It's automatic voter, voter registration for everyone, regardless of party affiliation. So you'd think that the GOP should be in support of this in theory, right? But they're not. And the reason why they have to lie and pretend as if these changes will lead to fraud when that's not true is because they don't want to have to admit the real reason why they don't want more people voting. It's simple. More people voting means more Republicans lose elections. They rely on low voter turnout where the same older, loyal base of Republican evangelicals reliably show up to vote for them every single year without offering no new policies, without trying to expand their electorate. And that's worked for them. So more people voting is going to make it more difficult for them to win elections because that's more people who they have to win over that they can't win over. And when more people show up to vote, they often lose. They know this. Everyone knows this. I mean, if every single person in this country voted in every single election going forward, Republicans would never win another election again. Right. And that's because most Americans don't agree with this party, even though they represent one of two major political parties in this country. They're still a minority po uh, party when it comes to policy, meaning that the overwhelming majority of Americans do not agree with the policies they're, that they're putting forward. So this is why they're fighting against these efforts so much. It's also why. They're trying to suppress the vote in certain states by disenfranchising voters and removing polling places in districts with people of color, mostly, who typically vote Democrat. It's why they gerrymander so explicitly and even racially. They don't want more people voting because they'll lose elections this way.
That's what you have to keep in mind. But they can't say that. So people like Stephen Miller and Donald Trump have to pretend like fraud is their main concern or non-citizens voting is a concern when in actuality, they know that that's bullshit. But as the party grows increasingly fascistic and authoritarian, some of them are just admitting it, that they're against voting rights. Take Matt Walsh, for example. These people should not be allowed to vote. I mean, you hear people say that in a half-joking way. Oh, I can't believe these people can vote. But, but really, they shouldn't be able to. Like, actually, they should not be able to vote. That should be something that we, that, that becomes a serious topic of conversation. Okay, like the kind of thing that comes up on presidential debates. Okay, like an issue that political parties have to deal with in their platforms. We should really be talking about this. That there are a lot of people who are voting in this country who should not have that right. They don't deserve it. And as I've tried to explain many times, the right to vote, it is not a God-given right guaranteed to everybody regardless of anything. It's not. Okay, it's it's not fundamental to your human nature that you automatically are entitled to um, have a say over the you know, political system in your country. It's not. There, there are some basic guidelines that should be in place. You should, you should have to earn that right. Not everybody should have it. And it is so incredibly obvious that, are, that if you are an absolute oblivious moron who knows nothing about your own country, or the political or the or, or the, the government uh, that runs it, then you shouldn't have any say over it. You just heard one of the most popular right-wing pundits say the quiet part loud. And he is not the only one. Vivek Ramaswamy, a GOP presidential candidate, has proposed raising the voting age to 25. Now again, this is because they know that if more people vote, especially young people, Republicans are going to have a very difficult time winning elections. So that's why Republicans are attacking Taylor Swift. But unfortunately for them, going after one of the biggest pop stars in the world isn't going to do them any favors. So I would highly, highly encourage them to keep this up because if they thought that lefties were ruthless, well, wait until they get a taste of Swifties because they seem absolutely ruthless and they will fucking drag anyone who dares come after their queen. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I rise today to offer my amendment that utilizes the Holman rule to reduce the salary of Sean Kelly, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness. That salary shall be reduced to $1. Like many of Biden's bureaucrats, Mr. Skelly is failing at his job and the basic responsibilities. On his watch, the Army missed their recruiting goal by 15,000 soldiers last year, and all other branches were forced to dig deep into their pools of delayed entry applicants to meet their recruitment goals. Mr. Skelly has also been with the Biden administration since the beginning and was appointed to the transition team. Some irony there. In November of 2020, As the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness, Mr. Skelly played an instrumental role in the disastrous and shameful withdrawal from Afghanistan that killed 13 of America's finest, 13 American heroes. 
this embarrassing surrender to the Taliban. As DOD's highest-ranking trans official, this delusional man thinking he is a woman embodies and espouses the wokeism that causes that's causing significant harm to our military readiness and troop morale. You just listened to a despicable speech from Congresswoman and public handjob giver Lauren Boebert, where she purposefully misgendered a Biden administration official repeatedly and recommended that her salary be reduced to one dollar, in part because she's trans, but mostly because she's trans. It is one of the most disgusting, vile and explicitly bigoted speeches that we've seen in this era. But it's totally on brand for bumbling Bobo. Now, thankfully, her colleagues in Congress did not let that slide. And Betty McCollum objected to the amendment that she proposed and also said this in response. I rise in the strongest opposition to this amendment. And people deserve to be treated with dignity and respect when being addressed. Assistant Secretary Skelly has served in her role admirably as she has done as her time as a naval officer. Assistant Secretary Skelly is a naval fighter, uh, uh, naval for over 20 years. And, I, you know, I, I, I am a little upset because the, the, the lack of respect that has been shown to Secretary uh, Kelly by the last speaker is surprising for me on this House floor, which we hold into such high esteem. A naval flight officer for 20 years, including time spent in the Pacific. While we're all important how important this region is right now, there's absolutely no basis for this amendment. The colleague who offers this amendment provides no real substantive reason why Assistant Secretary Kelly should have her salary reduced. There's only one reason why Assistant Secretary uh, Kelly is being targeted is because she is simply a woman. I have fought long and hard with many women before me and with our allies for pay equity. We still have a long way to go, but I'm never going to vote to reduce a woman's salary. I urge my colleagues to vote no, and I reserve the balance of my time. I think that was a great response. Short, sweet, to the point. You know, she condemned the transphobia, but also the misogyny, because what Boebert said there was indeed misogynistic. She didn't just target somebody because she's trans. She targeted a woman, right? Now, Boebert responded and not only doubled down on the transphobia, but she actually ramped it up exponentially. And that led to a back and forth between her and McCollum. But as you're going to see, McCollum not only got the last word, but she threw in a really good jab at Boebert towards the end. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I guess delusion runs deep in the Democrat Party. Um, I would... Uh I would go on the record to say that um, science is a friend in this case, and um, sure, if you want to call Mr. Skelly a her, his chromosomes are still XY, and um, we trust the science over here rather than delusion and playing dress-up and imaginary uh, games with our military readiness. Our military needs to be lethal and able to defend our national security, not pander to the woke extremist left and make up fairy tales. Mr. Chair, I reserve. The gentlelady reserves. The gentlelady from Minnesota is recognized. Mr. Chair, 
When it comes to service of our country, there's a couple of things we ask from people. To take a loyalty oath, they do that. To, pay, to, to pass basic uh, training and to be up and fit for the job that, that they're, they're called upon to do. They do that. Secretary Skelly qualifies in all those areas. And as far as uh, the, uh, the conversation that my colleague is having, I'm not going to engage in hateful rhetoric, uh, Mr. Chair. Instead, I want to focus on the admirable service that our transgender, gay, bisexual members do in an all-voluntary army. They volunteer to put their lives on the line. They deserve the dignity and respect this House can give them. And with that, I reserve the balance of my time. Gentlelady from Colorado is recognized. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chair. I, I just want the record to reflect that there's nothing hateful about truth. And uh, again, I do urge my colleagues to support my amendment to restore the focus of our Department of Defense to defend our nation. Uh, and uh, so I, I look forward to um, this Holman rule being utilized to reduce the salary of Secretary Sean uh, Skelly, uh, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness, to one dollar. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I yield. The gentlelady yields back. The gentlelady from Minnesota is recognized. Well, I'm, I'm uh, just baffled here that we can pick and choose what, what's science, what's not science, what is human rights and dignity and respect, and what is not human rights and dignity and respect. And I look forward to having the discussion on climate change based on science with the gentlewoman from Colorado at some point in time. And with that, Mr. Speaker, at this point, I thank all our servicemen and women for their service, their families that serve alongside of them, and I yield back. Wow, that last line was absolutely perfect. Republicans like Lauren Boebert and also Marjorie Greene, to be fair, they tell you that you should trust the science when it comes to issues related to sex and gender, but they only invoke the science to promote transphobia. But in actuality, they don't care about science when it comes to climate science or the science regarding vaccines. All of a sudden, they're not so confident in the science. All of a sudden, the trust in science goes out the window. And unfortunately for Lauren Boebert, scientists also don't agree with her on this issue. Neither do psychologists or sociologists or anthropologists or anyone that can acknowledge the basic fact that trans people have always existed and they will continue to exist and thus deserve our respect. But what happened next is even more despicable because Bobo's transphobic amendment was actually adopted by a voice vote, although McCollum was not done fighting. Question is on the amendment offered by the gentlelady from Colorado. All those in favor say aye. aye. All opposed say no. In the opinion of the chair, the ayes have with the amendment is agreed to. Mr. Mr. Chair. The gentlelady from Minnesota is recognized. I would like to request the roll call vote. Pursuant to Clause 6 of Rule 18, further proceedings on the amendment offered by the gentlelady from Colorado will be postponed. Yeah, so that's the party in control of the House of Representatives. And these idiots have the power to shut down the entire government and probably will do that in the coming days. And if Boebert's behavior alone wasn't embarrassing enough, her and Marjorie Greene were both trying to one-up each other all throughout the day. So Marjorie Greene introduced a similar amendment where she reduced Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's salary down to $1 as well. And guess what? That actually passed by a voice vote too. I wonder why she chose to target him in particular. Hmm, if Boebert is targeting somebody because they're trans, then maybe Marjorie's targeting some, no, it couldn't be, couldn't be. Marjorie Greene racist? Inconceivable. I just, I can't handle how idiotic 
our government is, right? And mind you, that if these imbeciles actually do manage to shut down the government, ironically, they're still going to be paid while thousands of federal employees are going to be furloughed. And yet they're going to shut down the government, still be paid while trying to simultaneously cut other official salary to one dollar. It's just it's too much. But I do want to get back to Boebert because this is not the first time, believe it or not, that she has specifically targeted Secretary Skelly. As Ross Story explains, this is actually the second time in two months that Boebert introduced an amendment to a government spending bill that would reduce the salary of Sean Skelly, the highest ranking transgender official serving in the Defense Department under the Holman rule, allowing lawmakers to target specific federal employees for salary cuts or firing. And again, she is targeting this woman specifically because she's trans. That's it. It's discrimination in its purest form. And she can try to justify it by saying that Skelly isn't doing her job adequately because recruitment numbers are down. But I mean, we all know what this is really about. The cruelty is the point. She wants to embarrass and humiliate her because she's trans. She wouldn't know about Skelly if Skelly wasn't trans. Neither would most Americans, but she's trying to put a spotlight on this person so that way they receive hate and harassment and abuse. And we've reached the point where transphobic bigots have become so goddamn deranged that their bigotry has actually managed to transcend transphobia. And it's to the point where they're just being misogynistic now, too. For example, Piers Morgan talked to people who are seriously with a straight face claiming that trans women have an advantage when it comes to fucking fishing. Yeah. His angling team have refused to compete in this year's World Championships. The decision comes after a trans woman, Becky Lee Burtwistle Hodges, a former male rugby player, was picked for the team. Well, England's Angling Trust, the governing body, says trans women have no advantage over biological women. Many of England's star female anglers, however, vehemently disagree. And here to explain, after the captain of the England ladies' angling team, Heather Linfield and Wendy Metcalf, a former England ladies angling star who's described by North Nuf Norfolk News as a leading figure in the sport. So welcome to both of you. Uh, all right, let me start with you, Heather, if I may. There's a, a kind of belief from the governing bodies here that being a biological male would have no impact on the sport of angling. Is that right? That's what they're saying. And it, it's not true. I'm sorry, but I can't. They have to fucking stop. This is getting so ridiculous. Like, it feels like I'm watching a parody here. Like, what's happening? They are literally being misogynistic just to exclude trans women. Pure and simple. And they also did this in chess recently as well. The top chess federation ruled that trans women are not allowed to compete against cis women unless they show relevant proof. Because I guess the tiny femoid brain is inherently inferior to the large and superior male brain. I mean, I'm obviously being facetious, but how long until one of them makes that exact point unironically? Like, that's where we're at. That's where we're at with the discourse. It's ridiculous. They go out of their way to overly infantilize all women and make it seem as if they're completely incompetent, weak rubes, all so they can exclude trans women from every single aspect of society. It's just so ridiculous. Sure, these, uh, these feminists here might be making women look bad, but uh, at least trans women are getting fucked over the most, so who cares? But I mean, this goes back to the point about Cruelty and cruelty being the main purpose, right? There's no logic or reason to these arguments that they're making. They're just being cruel for cruelty's sake. 
any trans person with a modicum of success will be endlessly bullied because their visibility is the threat to these bigots. Because that visibility promotes the dangerous idea that trans people are people, and like all other human beings, some of them achieve success, right? And these bigots are so craven that they're even going after teenagers. So on September 18th, the stochastic terrorist hate account known as Libs of TikTok attacked a 17-year-old child who was crowned homecoming queen of her Missouri high school. And on top of that, transphobic grifter Riley Gaines, who tied with Leah Thomas for fifth place, also attacked the teenager, sarcastically calling her stunning and brave. Not to mention the headlines from right-wing outlets like this, which misgender her, did not help. And I say it didn't help because, expectedly, after this, the response was hate. Lots and lots of hate. She was bombarded by hate. Again, the 17-year-old was bombarded by hate by a bunch of people online who don't even know her because all of her friends and family were really happy for her. The student body voted for her, but yet everyone else online had a lot to say about her. The Kansas City Star explains, it was one of the most gratifying moments of her young life. Then by the next morning, the ugliness hit. Not much from the Kansas City area, as far as she could tell, or at all from her schoolmates, but from across the country in a deluge of social media malignancy on Facebook, Instagram, on X, formerly known as Twitter. Her sister, Francesca, 20, named Oak Park's homecoming queen in 2020, called from Boston where she attends college, asking if Tristan was alright. She had been reading the barrage of hostility. She was worried about Tristan being safe, said Sherry Young, the young woman's mother. The comment that has stuck with me, Tristan said, was that I should have been dragged off the field by my hair and beaten up. How the world came to know that Tristan is trans is still a mystery to her, she said. No one announced it. The North Kansas City School District didn't mention it in its congratulatory notice. Tristan isn't even the school's first transgender homecoming queen. In 2015, senior Landon Patterson was named, leading to a protest outside the school. So just to reiterate, these adults online, people like Riley Gaines, the writer at Breitbart, libs of TikTok's Chaya Raichik, they didn't just target this person and direct hate and harassment towards her, target this child to be clear. They also outed her because again, as the article states, the school did not say that she was trans. The student body voted for her, but a bunch of transphobic adults online decided to direct hate towards her and make this teenager's life a living hell, as if it's not already hard enough to be a teenager in America, especially if you're trans. I mean, it is genuinely deranged, and as transphobic bigots become more craven and try to demonize any and every trans person for simply existing, let me tell you this, they're only making themselves look bad. Not the trans person, they look bad. Going after children, that makes you look like the asshole, not the trans child, right? But when you're in a position of power and authority like Lauren Boebert, going back to her, that's where you can do the most damage, not just with regard to the policies that you can push, but with the agenda that you're able to set with that massive amount of power and with your platform. But even though her in-your-face transphobia is super difficult to stomach, I do think that Lauren Boebert and these people who go after teenagers, all of these things that they're doing, it's gonna backfire because most Americans, they're not explicitly transphobic. I think that most people are mildly supportive of trans people are just genuinely ignorant because they don't know anyone who's trans. But this type of vitriol at a level this high, it's going to turn off the normies. And not only that, it's going to galvanize trans people and people with trans friends and family. So when people do this, 
when they are that loud with their hate, they're not doing themselves any favors. In fact, I'd argue that they're making matters worse. They're their own worst enemies. And even though their hate is ugly and I hate that trans people have to endure it, trust me, they're speeding up our fight for equality. Because I don't think that anyone who is a reasonable person can look at that speech or look at what people online are doing to a teenager and say, yeah, I'm on that side. I'm with them. No, it's just it's just too in your face and how immoral and deranged it is. So these transphobes are not helping themselves, thankfully. And the faster that they are delegitimized, the better off all people will be. Because we are not equal until trans people are equal and treated with respect as well. And I'll leave that there. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.